Hey everybody, this is Rob Leifeld. Welcome to another edition of Rob Observations. We are all up into the comic books, into the comic book movies, the comic book shows, the comic book cartoons, the comic book toys. That's what we do. Uh, as so much of it has shaped the culture and blown my mind, I am drawn to my youth and I carry so many of my observations from my seven-year-old self all the way to now as the world has drastically changed. I love discussing all of this with you. And boy, do we have some stuff to talk about. This last weekend, this frame of time saw the release of a brand new Marvel Comics film. And it, you know, it has been a year uh, of a lot of Marvel, uh, not a lot of Marvel stuff, a lot of comic book stuff. I mean, we've gotten, uh, if, if memory serves, uh, we started off with the extended uh, Zack Snyder Justice League Snyder Cut, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I did an entire podcast on it. I have uh, watched it again since. I loved it. I love the grandeur. I love the sweep of the entire story. I love how much bigger it it it, it got and, and can't believe how trimmed it was in the uh, in the Joss Whedon verse, version. I, I still am blown away that there was that much. And in truth, you know, Zach was not uh, uh, dispatched to do that much more shooting. He just literally was to be taken at his word that he had all of that insane footage. And uh, I'm glad that the movement worked, that Warner Brothers, for whatever reason, for whatever financial reasons, decided to pull the trigger. And that, for me, uh, I think that was in March. It was, you know, late winter that we got that epic release. I dug it. I, I, I literally still um, really just enjoy the Snyder Cut so much. That, that really kind of kicked everything off. We got the Invincible cartoon shortly thereafter. Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, Ryan Otley's amazing uh, saga of uh, of young young uh, Invincible and Omni Man and and just all of the crazy adventures in the in the crazy world and and the and the extreme. I don't think the world was was ready for the adult nature, adult themes. Um, just amazing amazing that that it, it the episodes whatever we were given eight episodes it wasn't enough was it 10 i i i just know i loved it and uh and and that is uh coming from someone who again was a first time invincible adopter who who pulled it off the stands and couldn't believe how how quality how accomplished these two talented guys i'd never heard of were and the the vision that they put down on the page and then to see it so many years later on you know, on TV, uh, in high def with great animation and great, you know, animation qualities, uh, and, and a great story adhering to all of the tenets of the story that made me love Invincible. And then, um, pretty sure that, uh, that, that, that there was a, is, is it called Jupiter's Legacy? That, I, I, that came out, uh, following right, right in the same frame, I believe as Invincible. And then the summer kicked off with Black Widow, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It, it to me, was very much, it knew what it wanted to be. This is the, the interesting thing that I am getting from the Marvel, you know, cinematic, you know, universe is they seem to me that they, uh, going as far back as with Winter Soldier, because I was raised on uh, 1970s thrillers, not just 1970s comics. And there is a, uh, movie that I love called Three Days of the Condor, and it stars Robert Redford, and it's fantastic. And he uncovers a government conspiracy and then is on the run uh, from people who are trying to discredit him and to kill him. So if this sounds familiar, it is indeed the skeleton of the plot of uh, Winter Soldier. I don't think the Russo brothers or anyone involved with that movie would deny the effect that Three Days of the Condor had on Winter Soldier down to the fact that Robert Redford is in both. I think that is a gentle uh, nod uh, to, to the fact that, that, that this is celebrating kind of the quintessential 1970s political thriller. And uh, the thing I like about Winter Soldier is it is it is as smart as it is exciting. And that is what I loved about Three Days of the Condor. And you go, Lifehold, you saw a lot of movies in the 70s. Yes, Movies that were released in 1972, 1974, 1975 were coming on TV. Again, it's so funny because just the other night, when, when before I was uh, turning in for the night and going to turn off the TV, I, I clicked over to the networks to see what the networks had on. And I forgot that earlier this year, last spring, that, that CBS 
started, brought back the Sunday Night Movie. Well, the Sunday Night Movie was a staple of all of our Gen X youth. Uh, ABC had the Sunday Night Movie. That's where I saw movies like The Sound of Music, The Ten Commandments, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So many of my favorites. Um, I would later then, as as in my adult years, in my 18 on, when these uh, theaters would show the uncut Sound of Music, the uncut Gone with the Wind, complete with the intermission, the um, you know the uncut Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I would I would go and see these in theaters and just be blown away by the stuff that was edited out of the uh, of of the of the television broadcast of these great films or the aspect ratio, how how much of literally the picture I was not able to see. So, Three Days of the Condor was one of those movies. It was on regularly on television on ABC or CBS one of their Sunday night movie vehicles. And uh, and so the Winter Soldier seemed very much to be, like, we're going to do a political thriller. Let's do the best one there ever was, which is Three Days of the Condor. With Black Widow, it seemed like they said, well, let's, let's embrace, since she is a spy, let's embrace the spy genre of movies, which is the very best of Bourne and the very best of the uh, Daniel Craig Bond movies, both of which seem to have been feeding off each other. Certainly that first Daniel Craig Bond movie, uh, you know, um, Casino Royale definitely seemed like it was uh, picking up on the early uh, Bourne uh, identity films, especially the Paul Greengrass uh, sequel. And, and and so that's what Black Widow felt like to me. And, and especially that first two acts, the relentless pace. Um, I love the opening of Black Widow in, in, in the uh, in the 90s when they when they have to go on the run. And, uh, and David Harbour is on the plane of that is on the wing of that biplane. Um, it's exciting stuff. I really dug it. Well, this week we saw Shang-Chi. I have said Shang-Chi my whole life. I have now found that I am slightly mispronouncing it, and it is Shang-Chi. And, uh, you know, I hadn't read anything about it other than the trailers I'd seen or um, just, just you know, some of the, the promotional bits. I didn't read a single review. I didn't look at um, any of the interviews in my older age. I am, uh, in in some instances, I am retrenching into wanting to go in completely and totally surprised. And in in this case, what I did was, well, I was a purebred, uh, first adopter, master of kung fu fan. I've done an entire episode. It's called Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting. And if you don't believe that martial arts swept the nation in the late 70s, please go listen to that podcast. I take you in depth from Marvel's own words in the Marvel, um, the, the both the Master of Kung Fu omnibuses, which they started releasing around 2015, and the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu's, which they started releasing around similar, roughly the same period of time. Um, the, these took years to negotiate because Fu Manchu, who was Shang-Chi's father, in the Marvel comic book series was actually created and, and semi-licensed, borrowed uh, for use in Marvel's long-running series. Now, the rights to Fu Manchu or what, and, and, and some of the underlying material was what kept them from reprinting it for so many years. And so, like, Marvel knew what they had too and they put out those omnibuses. They were a big release. There was a big announcement. We've got it because... Those omnibuses feature the work of of stellar talents. Jim Starlin, who created Shang-Chi. Paul Galassi, who really pushed the envelope as far as photorealism at the time and detail and storytelling, cinematic storytelling. And then Mike Zeck, who went on to become a giant superstar in the comic book industry and and cut his teeth um, doing kind of, I would say, the back half of the entire Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu saga. And, uh, and again, I, I talk about how it spurned on Iron Fist and, and Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter and Karate Kid getting his own series, breaking off from the Legion of Superheroes over at DC Comics. I mean, we really cover it. The late 70s was a martial arts explosion. It is all 100% due to Bruce Lee and his incredible impact that he had on an entire generation and, and culture. But I relied on the fact that, well, okay, I'm going to see a movie. I know Fu Manchu is off the table. He has become at once um, a repulsive uh, 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 stereotype. And and um, uh, uh, I think they refer to it as yellow fear or a symbol of yellow terror. Or But, I mean, again, uh, he is a, he is a, 
a, a product of a bygone age and they don't have the rights to him anymore either. Similarly, you know, after seeing Shang-Chi, so I'm actually skipping right to the end and we're, we're, my wife and I are walking to the car. She really enjoyed it. I actually really enjoyed it. I'll get that out of the way. Really thoroughly enjoyed it. She asked me about, you know, um, the Mandarin and, and him being, uh, Shang-Chi's father. And I'm like, well, they didn't really call his father the Mandarin in this movie. He refers to the Bane Kingsley iteration of himself in Iron Man 3 as the Mandarin and how racist that is. He points that out in the movie. Well, the Mandarin in the comic books also was not deemed as racist, but he was a giant Iron Man fan. I remember him being introduced in Iron Man and Battling Shield and the Avengers along the way. And uh, Mandarin was a really cool character, but his he was not in my issues of Master of Kung Fu, in my longstanding uh, enjoyment of that series, he was not a part of Shang-Chi's life. What I'm getting at is, it is clear, just as they wanted to make a political thriller and they made Winter Soldier, and just as they wanted to make a spy film and they, and they, and they looked to, you know, uh, the Bourne movies and, and, and Casino Royale and the Daniel Craig stuff, it really felt like they wanted to, uh, move into the, uh, the, the, the Princess Mononoke space, the, uh, Studio Ghibli, you know, kind of space with Marvel, uh, definitely Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, as well as other, uh, like Jet Li's hero. Um, the, the, it really felt like Marvel, uh, wanted to get in on the wire foo. Now, even, okay, so so my wife, I love her to death and and she knows sometimes I bring her up in the best possible lights on my on my podcast, but her memory is fleeting. Um, she won't remember what she had for breakfast the next morning. It's just a, a memory thing. Um, so when I, you know, referenced Crouching Tiger and when I, when I actually referenced the words wire foo, that is not a Rob Liefeld uh term and it may have fallen out of the culture but it was everywhere in 1999 to 2000 it was um seen as as part of there was you know the matrix had the bullet time effects okay but also the wire foo aspect of bringing back this these extended semi ballet level martial arts it's the way someone is kicking someone in the air and it looks realistic you know in crouching tiger hidden dragon for you know a minute and a half and uh, I was like, wow, I, I really, it was everywhere for so long between Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Hero and so many other of the films of that time. I mean, they were, if Jet Li was making a movie at the time, it was incorporating some aspect of that. And of course, it, it carried through, through three Matrix sequels. But Wire Fu had kind of been put away, but boy, it was back in, 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 in true form in, uh, in, in, in Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. And I was, I was taken back to, you know, uh, when I was first experiencing, experiencing all of these and, 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 and getting imports and, and, and buying, uh, you know, uh, Japanese DVDs. Cause I was, I just wanted to consume so much of it. And, and so much of it did inform the artwork that I was doing at the time when I came back and did, X-Force in 2004, 2005, uh, every Shatterstar sequence I did, I was um, taking from uh, so much of what I had seen in Hero, again, this Jet Li movie, um, that also stars Shang-Chi's father in in this movie. He's in Jet Li's Hero, which is a magnificent uh, killer film, and again, has a ton of what they would deem wire foo. Now, again, if... That is a term that has fallen out of grace. I, I did not get the memo, but I'm only referring to it in what it was termed as back then. But I saw, again, getting to the Studio Ghibli stuff, uh, so much of that is on display. I mean, they have really taken Shang-Chi and, and, and just so you know, the original 120, I have the last issue in front of me. Of course, I went to my long box and I went through all of my... Uh, of my, my, my Master of Kung Fu's, and here is Master of Kung Fu 125, okay, issue 125, 125 consecutive issues of the the, the Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu was the official name, and it wrapped up in 1983, 
For 10 years, he has walked the way of the warrior. Now, it has come to an end. Special double-sized collector's item issue, okay? And uh, this was a blast. I bought every issue. I never missed one. Again, it was a tenant of amazing artwork. Amazing artwork and uh, storytelling. And it was much more of a spy series. Um, Shung was working with different American and Interpol and European agencies to bring back the terror network that his father had across the globes. There was plenty of assassins and there were plenty of bombs and, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, those, those kind of threats, um, you know, nerve gas, all sorts of threats that, uh, Shang-Chi was always trying to atone and be the, um, be the counter to his, his father's terrorist, who is, as we understood throughout the terms of the story, Fu Manchu. And, um, you know, in this, in this last issue, he gets in a boat and he, and he, and he's at peace after vanquishing his last and final foe. And we learn more of his true origins and, and his loves. Um, and he kind of has to conquer his demons. And, uh, and it's a little bit of a, of a career overview as some final issues sometimes are. But I mean, in the splash page, there, there is um, Fu Manchu and, and, and Shang-Chi right there. It is written by Alan Zalentes. It is penciled by William Johnson and it is expertly inked by, you guessed it, Mike Mignola, who started out his career as an outstanding inker. So I go see Shang-Chi and I, I didn't read anything because I think I know about this, um, and quickly, especially in the opening, because obviously they've established a new family history for this character, for you cinematically. And look, I, um, I've I've read uh, in in the last few days, having seen it now, and then looking at what people said that, that you know they've they've referred to the box office for this character as as someone who was deep in the Marvel Universe. Deep means back of the line, means deep into the treasure trove, not on the top. Um, you know, I don't know if you ever went to the dentist uh, in, in, as, as a kid and, and the dentist would always, at my dentist, he had multiple drawers. Drawer one, two, three, four of a, of a you know, big kind of drawer, uh, uh, dresser drawer. And, and, and you could open one of those drawers and pick out whatever you wanted in terms of toys or, um, you know, games. And it was kind of like your treat for getting, sitting through the pain of the dental office. And uh, I always saw that the lower you went in terms of the drawers, that that that's where the rubber balls and 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 lollipops were. But the middle drawers were where the best stuff was. So when they're like deep, deep, this character is deep in the universe, a deeper Marvel Comics character. It means again back of the line. We did that entire episode two on how wrong Wall Street was when they evaluated Marvel as a sell stock. Sell, it, get out of there. You know, get rid of it. Uh, I did an entire podcast on this. Uh, in, 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 I mean, how Marvel built their cinematic history in the face of Wall Street saying they only have the duds left. They said the A-list stuff is gone. Fantastic Four's gone. X-Men's gone. Spider-Man's gone. You know, those are those are the gems. All they have left is their D-C-list characters. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor. And obviously, kudos to Mr. Feige and everyone involved in turning that around and expanding and, and really, I mean, they strut with this kind of stuff down. They, they love making the D-list. And, and I guarantee you that the Guardians of the Galaxy were seen as D-list. I remember being told by the president of Fox in 2015, following the um, late, late 2014, early 2015, because Deadpool had finally gotten the green light. But he said, Guardians of the Galaxy took everybody by storm. No one's ever heard of any of those characters. Most of us were like, were they made up for film? They didn't know that Rocket Raccoon and Groot and had multi-decades of history with Marvel Comics. So, so simply because they weren't on the tip of their tongue, they, 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 they were like, these characters must not be popular. And by them being as successful as they were, they felt now, oh, okay, Deadpool doesn't need to be the level of Spider-Man awareness for us to have success greenlighting him. And I think Marvel has gone a great deal in terms of, uh, uh, you know, really pushing uh, the idea that, that, that you can really look to the source material and, and trust that there's an audience for each and every piece, not just the stuff that's on the tip of the tongue, not just the stuff at the front of the line. So master of Kung Fu, Shang-Chi, 10 rings, reading all this stuff deeper, you know, a lesser known Marvel character, a lesser known, how impressive for a lesser known. And, it, and of course there's all the flexing that Marvel can open anything, anywhere, anytime, which they can. I, if you didn't believe, believe. Okay. 
But what I wasn't prepared for was how they took this, what was a kind of a, a martial arts spy drama that was very popular in comics. Um, and and I, I, in, in terms of the sales, I, I saw that Master of Kung Fu averaged about 130,000 sales. It was a strong middle seller, not top, not, not lower tier. You know, Master of Kung Fu never had to be dialed down to bi-monthly like the X-Men and the Daredevil did, did in their really sad days where people were not buying those comics. Shang-Chi always was a strong middle seller for Marvel Comics. They said along the lines of Ghost Rider, who we've seen two, two cinematic versions of Ghost Rider already. So, so Shang-Chi was definitely one of the more successful in the Marvel catalog. And it ran its course. And they, again, stopped after 125 consecutive issues. That's pretty amazing. But when I went and saw this, and I saw the magic component, the new family, the father, the Ten Rings, moving the Mandarin kind of origin into the Shang-Chi world. And and if they've done that in the last two years in the comics, that's all well and good. That They've been making this movie since 2018, planning to make this movie. They introduced the director and the star in San Diego 2019, six months into 2019. So this is something that Marvel has been, they do, they, they've had on the uh, on the docks. And just as, I'm not sure if I've completely ever revealed to you, but one of the things going back, and this is a kind of a cool sidebar, it doesn't need its own uh, podcast, but in the 2000s, uh, because of Marvel's now relationship with Sony, as Sony was making the Spider-Man movie, this first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie that would come out in 2002, they were given the script. So trust me. Um, so I have had scripts of my films well in advance, and I could incorporate elements of those screenplays into the comics tomorrow and have you believe that I was the um, the 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 creator of those ideas. Back, it's 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 really back channeling, reverse engineering. You know the the elements and how they get to you. Bill Jemis had told me that having read Bill Jemis, who was the um, publisher, one of the co-publishers of, of Marvel at the time, said, you know, we've got, we're not going to make the same mistakes we did with Fox's X-Men. They were very upset that they did not. One of the things that may have cost Bob Harris his job in the summer of 2000 is because he did not believe in adhering um, closely to the X-Men movie because everyone, including Hugh Jackman, who with Entertainment Weekly last week, just sourcing this, this would be middle of August, so by the time I'm doing this, end of August, in the in, in around August 22nd, 23rd, Hugh Jackman, Hugh Jackman did an interview with Entertainment Weekly promoting his new HBO film. Um, uh, I think it's called Renaissance and uh, Reminiscence. It's Reminiscence. And he was promoting it and he was talking about before X-Men came out and the idea that um, Fox thought they had a giant flop on their hands. And he talks of it in that there is, he believes over 47 minutes of the original Brian Singer X-Men missing because he said weeks before the movie came out, he saw a version of the movie that had 47 minutes. He said to the interview, I'm going to ballpark it and say 47 minutes of material that got cut. He says, let me tell you what happens. And he even warns, this is kind of the underbelly of Hollywood. He says, uh, Fox thought they had a dud. Fox thought after all was said and done that they had a giant flop on their hands. So they were cutting and trimming right up to the last minute. He said, in fact, his agent had told him, you know, on the readings and the auditions that Hugh Jackman was going out for prior to X-Men opening and putting him on the map, that his agent and manager had both told him, don't tell anybody, say that you're a lead, you know, in, in upcoming films, but don't tell them you're in a comic book movie. And I quote from Hugh Jackman, that doesn't mean anything. In fact, it's a negative, is what he said in this interview. And, uh, and, and I think that's really funny. That's the 2000s. That is the 2000s. So nobody knew that X-Men would connect the way it did. I went and saw a preview screening. I wrote a review of the movie for Comic Book Resources, but it has been since lost to the internet. I, I did some research because I really wanted to read it because I had gotten an advanced sneak peek at the X-Men about a week before it came out. And I went home and I wrote a really impassioned review of how much I couldn't believe how, how faithful it was and how, how they had pulled it off so well, which I, I believe they did, especially given the $65 million budget the original X-Men had and just the charisma and the chemistry. And But uh, CBR, uh, over the course of turning over the company several times because it's been sold multi, multiple times, you know, some of those files have just been lost um, to the Dead Sea of the Internet. 
and, and the blackness of, 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 you know, the dark webs, wherever they were flushed into. But uh, I was so excited. I knew that upon seeing it, it was going to be great. But the comics industry and planning months in advance thought, well, this thing isn't going to do well and it could potentially drag down our very successful X-Men line. So we're going to just avoid it altogether. And they did. And in doing so, they didn't have anything to capitalize on. So much of what my friends, because we took my neighbors who weren't into comic book fans, I wanted to expose them to the X-Men and they couldn't believe how much they loved it. And I'm telling you, they all said that when Logan arrives at the school and we get that 10-minute kind of, here's the school, here's the jet is under the basketball court. Everybody is protected here at the school where they go to class and learn not only academics, but their powers. And it was kind of a precursor to what was coming, cinematically at least, with Harry Potter, with, hey, mutant school. It, it, it comes off much more exciting on film than I imagine it did on screen. But Bob was um, also, Bill Jemis had told me how disappointed he was, and he put it squarely on Bob in a lunch that he and I had at Chicago Comic-Con in the summer of 2000. I was doing Wolverine. Wolverine was uh, the number two best-selling comic. My issues were top of the charts for Marvel uh, while I was doing them. So Bill Jemis took me out to lunch at Wizard World Chicago, and he was um, telling me how disappointed he was that they didn't have as much material in order to tie in with the X-Men movie, and they feel like they, in his words, missed the train on that and, and, and missed out on opportunities to give the public something more familiar, and w- w- which would run side by side with the successful film that was out there. Well, you can see why Bob and the, and the powers that be, because he's not alone, he doesn't alone have the power to not do that. He can just give a recommend that he doesn't want to put in his comics, but someone else could have overrode him, but for whatever reason, and I think wrongfully, he was you know, cited as the scapegoat, because Bob also, while I'm talking about him, I have to say, you know, shepherded the rise uh, the, 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 the X-Men were A-list and they went for like to double A-list by, by shepherding the careers of myself and Jim Lee and Wills Portacio and, uh, and giving us that, um, the, 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 that, that microphone with which to sing our songs, which became hit tunes like X-Force and the relaunched X-Men and Cable and Deadpool and all the other. Okay. Bob, Bob did a great job. So, but now a decade later, He's being accosted because it didn't adhere enough to the movie. Well, one summer goes by and it's 2001 and Bill Jemis is telling me that what they're doing with the Ultimate Spider-Man line is capitalizing on all that they know that is coming. So so that all um, the, the fact that there is going to be a Sam Raimi Spider-Man, he's back in high school, they're starting younger. They knew exactly, they had read the script. Marvel had to sign off and read and be included in the screenplay two years before it shoots, okay? So the screenplay gets written, then you prep your movie, then you shoot your movie, then you edit your movie, then you market your movie, you pick the date and you release it. That is a two-year window of which Marvel had plenty of time now to prepare for what's coming. An Ultimate Spider-Man, which had um, tenants of the Raimi Spider-Man that we would all see in the summer of 2002, it got there first because they had the secret ingredients. They knew exactly what they wanted to give to you so that by the time the movie comes out, they're already collecting the first four issues, six issues, putting out collections and getting you excited that there's something that reflects the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, that it that something in Borders, or at the time Borders was a giant bookstore chain, in Barnes & Noble, um, wherever you might, your comic book store, wherever you might seek this stuff out, go to a comic book store having seen this and little Billy loves Spider-Man, well, then you search, you know, and, 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 and either back then the Google search or the yellow pages, it's back in 2002, so it's pretty early technology-wise, but you find your way to a comic store or, like I said, a Barnes & Noble, the graphic novel section at Borders, and they were ready to go. So there's there's times in the last couple of years if Shang-Chi has reflected some of what was on the screen, it's because Marvel Productions, uh, obviously they had to get the toys out, so production elements and design elements and story elements were out there, but they were, you know, secretly, um, you know, uh, uh, NDA'd so that you wouldn't, um, you know, uh, non-disclosure agreements, which were, which were signed so that you don't know and see what's coming. Well, I was blown away at the elements, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, right here. I'm giving it to you. The, the elements of magic and how pervasive it is through the entire Shang-Chi movie. And, and I mean, it literally is a, as much of a, fan, a fantasy film in, in many ways as Lord of the Rings. 
In Harry Potter, I mean, there is so much magic. There's magical creatures. There's kaiju. I was not prepared to have, especially there's a sequence upon entering this magical realm that looks exactly like the realm at the center of the earth that King Kong um, accesses in Godzilla versus Kong. I'm like, wow, we're in the same place, except we're getting kind of this, uh, the, the, the Asian Pacific version of this. And, uh, and, and I dug it. I, I did not see it coming. And, and if you're going to have giant kaiju and especially some kaiju that, that look semi Lovecraftian in design with the tentacles and just, I mean, very, very, very little, I mean, a lot of HP Lovecraft in, in the, the bad monster per se. Uh, but man, I just was not prepared for all of the creatures and the magic and 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 the 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 set design that would take us to again these um realms that I associated with these uh you know foreign films whether it was Crouching Tiger or whether it was Hero or some of the other ones that are coming to my mind that I can't quite place but I have boxes of these DVDs and I was um eating up and again there was I saw flashes of Princess Mononoke, my favorite of the Studio Ghibli films. And so to have that be now the new access point for Shang-Chi, having grown up with, with the kind of the spy terrorist version, the, the martial arts spy counter-terrorist, um, I was like, well, this is cool. This is a new pivot. And I was really blown away. It, it is so much bigger than what they had advertised. I am so excited that I didn't, I did not know more about it going in and, and it now gives them a, it's like how Wakanda, and you know, if you've seen it, you're like life, we know this, I know you do, I'm just talking it out. Wakanda was like the technologically superior, right? You know, realm. And now we have a, a, a dedicated kind of another magic realm alongside the magic realms we've already encountered in the Doctor Strange, you know, stuff. And, and you go, they are really building out the Marvel Universe to the point where, and against, again, from the glimpses of the future um, and, and all of the future stuff that was taking place in, in Loki and the Im, impending arrival and further, you know, exposure of Kang the Conqueror, who I have also done an, an entire podcast episode on Kang the Conqueror. And, and it, the, Kang is in the title and, and, and there's a book that they released called The Man Who Stole Tomorrow and it cemented because I grew up when when Kang was uh during the period that I was digging comics in the in the mid 70s Kang was the de facto A-list Avengers villain giving them all the business all the time and they featured him heavily in in several annuals of which I'm going to get to because we're going to do part of this episode is as we as summer turns to fall young comic fans like myself were treated to these great things called annuals I've discussed them a lot on the show. And today I'm going to pick some of my top, my favorite annuals because the summer season was always a time where Marvel and DC, but mostly Marvel gave you an extra bite at the apple. And, and, and the, and the stuff that I'm going to tell you about comes with some amazing, amazing creative teams to boot. I mean, it is, it is, it is stunning. And, uh, and so, so I just wanted to, uh, to again, you know, just, tie this off by saying I was not prepared for the Shang Chi that I got. I was not prepared for the heavy uh, 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 favor, uh, the, 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 the heavy focus on magic and magical realms. Um, and yet I'm, I'm all in. I dug it. I thought this is a perfect pivot. And and he's such a great and rich character. And I loved all the, the reboot that they did. It is a hard reboot. It is a hard reimagining of the comic book Shang Chi. Now I understand they rebooted and relaunched the comic uh, nine months ago, six months ago. I, I, that is not what I'm referencing. The, the, the omnibuses, the deadly hands of Kung Fu, this, this, these, you know, giant three, five, five, all counting deadly hands of Kung Fu, five basically hardcover yellow page books. I mean, that's how thick these are, which, which chronicled 10 years of amazing history is now pivoted to this magic focus, which I did. I totally dig it. I, 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 the, the, again, the Ten Rings were not never a part of anything that I grew up with with Shang Chi. The dimensional realms, the creatures, the protector, the the Lovecraftian monsters, the kaiju, very cool. Totally into it. 
I dig it. I, 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 I love that they decided at Marvel to go all the way into the world and the realms of, as I've said, Crouching Tiger, Princess Mononoke. This movie proudly wears its influences on its sleeve, unapologetically, and it works. They just I also felt in Black Panther, in that second act, Black Panther had a lot of spy stuff going on too. Um, little James Bond action. Um, and, and, and so, so it, it, it's cool. M- Marvel can literally do anything. This, this has proven now to be the case so many times over that, that we should never, ever doubt what, that they can execute exactly what they are setting out to achieve because they're, they're doing it. Uh, Shang-Chi, very, very, very entertaining. Um, uh, I guess our next March, I mean, I, I didn't mention also after Invincible, uh, in, in the in-between, between before Invincible, obviously there was WandaVision, then there was Falcon Winter Soldier, obviously Loki. Yes, I did completely bypass those. It's been such an overload. Um, and, and man, we are spoiled. We are so spoiled. That, that, that's the great thing. Um, pivoting to comic books and these annuals and this discussion that I want to um, take us down. When I was a kid, they did the annuals. Again, once a year in the summer, you got an additional adventure. It was an Avengers annual, Captain America annual, a Spider-Man annual. It was an X-Men annual. You're going to get one of those. I'm picking for you the best ones that I ever thought uh, existed in the existence of annuals. And I am going to um, start with Avengers Annual 10. Avengers Annual 10 came out in uh, 19, uh, the fall of 1981. I'm sorry, the fall of 1980. And uh, it introduced Rogue a character that would go on to dominate the X-Men landscape. And it is an incredible tale written by Chris Claremont, who was not writing the Avengers at the time, so it was a treat to get Chris to write an Avengers tale. It featured the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who had appeared um, in the X-Men. And, uh, and, and I mean, this thing was just pure, pure fire. Um, the, 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 the Michael Golden artwork, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, Spider Woman, Captain uh, Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers returning after this um, kind of uh, tumultuous uh, uh, adventure in, in in Avengers number two hundred. Uh, it is it is nineteen eighty one is the Avengers annual number ten, but it is a finite tale as so many of the great annuals are, and it, get, it has guest stars which make for the best Spider Woman. And she encounters the Avengers and they face off against the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which had been rebooted as Avalanche and Blob and uh, Destiny, the Mystique. They were the cool new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And literally some of the most dynamic, uh, exciting comic book artwork illustrations you'll ever see. Uh, Michael Golden, inked by Armando Gill. It is just a fantastic standalone adventure that again serves to uh, introduce Rogue. And she is very sinister. Not the not the cuddly, lovable, troubled rogue that we will come to know. Um, and definitely not of the Anna Paquin persuasion on the film. That, that She is sinister in this and revels in her power and how um, she takes people off guard by siphoning their power and using it back against them and adding it to her own, you know, arsenal of strength and speed and flight. So uh, Avengers Annual 10 hit like a ton of bricks. It, it came out of nowhere. Again, it was back in the days that I didn't have a preview catalog. I didn't know it was coming. I just turned the corner and there it was. And, it, you know, Michael Golden, for as magnificent as the art is on the interior, the cover, everyone has always griped that he didn't do the cover. The cover is a series of panels, which is normally a no-no. I'd love to know the history. I know that they re, they Michael did do a proposed cover, and they went with this Al Milgram kind of multi-panel kind of telling you what's happening. I mean, the cover of the annual, again, uh, just, just to be very specific, is uh, got five uh, five panels. Captain America, totally defeated. Invincible Iron Man, knocked out. Spider-Woman's daring midnight rescue. The deadly new Brotherhood of Mutants. All that in a cameo appearance by the X-Men. And this is like, again, five different panels. Technically, one has an inset. Uh, so it's kind of an inset panel. So technically, six panels on the cover. And, and, and just not, not the kind of stuff that we normally saw out of Marvel. But a grade A plus amazing killer out of this world story introducing, again, a very new important uh, character that would go on to really help define the new direction of the X-Men. Breathtaking artwork, detail, expressions, faces, figures, um, staging that, that is among the best ever put on paper. Uh and the resolve of Carol Danvers, who left the Avengers in Avengers 200 in the annual issue in this weird, um, 
very abusive relationship with a Time Lord, and they go about to um, correct that here because Chris did not write Avengers 200, but he was the writer of Ms. Marvel right up to the point until the point that they canceled it and having uh, some ownership of the character. And he would then put Carol Danvers in the X-Men and she would then go on to have a new identity called Binary for the in-between stages before she pivots back to being Ms. Marvel, Captain Captain Marvel. It is a complicated history. That being said, Avengers Annual 10 is one of the best standalone stories in the history of comic books. You should check it out. And that summer was a delight. It was an absolute delight to turn the corner, see it on the rack, didn't know it was coming. Oh my gosh, Michael Golden, who had done my extended Micronauts run and was one of my favorite artists, was doing tons of covers for Marvel at the time. But wow, this incredible interior story that just blew everybody's mind. Um, Next up would be uh, X-Men Annual 3, okay? This and and here's the deal. I'm going to tell you this. What what I really believe about um, the the annuals of the time is Marvel was getting really great artists and 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 writing teams to to deliver these um, these annuals to you guys to us. And uh, it was explained to me. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use an, somebody who was looking through my sketchbook, not my personal sketchbook, but a uh, but a a sketchbook that I had cultivated over time. Um, I started as a kid and I got, as I grew to be an adult, but I have a, it's one of the bigger size sketchbooks and I would pay for commissions like so many of you have and done. And I've done some for many of you across the years. Uh, I have Mike Zeck. I have Jerry Ordway. I have, I have Dan Jurgens, I have Art Adams. I have Steve Lytle. Um, my, my mind is blanking at all the other, I have Walt Simonson. Okay. Um, so, Really, Jerry Ordway uh, takes my book. He, he had I had I had created a friendly relationship with Jerry. He was um, such a good guy, still such a good guy, such a nice, um, wonderful, gentle man. Also, amazing, outstanding talent. And he was tearing it up at the time, penciling and inking Fantastic Four and penciling and inking Superman, The Adventures of Superman. And so I I said, Hey, could I could I get could I commission a Superman, uh, you know, drawing from you? I did not ask for Lois Lane. What I got back was this immaculate, amazing detail. It could be a cover uh, in my giant size, which is probably 11 by 15 or 10 by 15 sketchbook. Pencils, inks, beautiful of a profile shot of uh, Superman facing Lois Lane and they're, they're smiling at each other. It's beautiful. I, I still have the sketchbook. It's amazing. Well, the sketches before that are not as realized. The people who I paid for commissions either did nice pencil drawings or some, you know, some, some commissions that, again, these were paid for, whether they're 40 or 60, a hundred and, you know, 20. I have a Bill Sienkiewicz Raven. I got Raven from the Teen Titans. It's cool. Um, but it was a, a very, the, the style of sketching that he was doing that summer at the shows was very like a 20 to 30 minute dollar sketch, a 30 minute sketch, no matter what. He just was very quick and accomplished. And it was, um, didn't have a lot of spotted blacks. It's all kind of open. Um, n- not a whole lot of rendering. Uh, I got a John Romita Jr., a Colossus. It's, it's pretty good. Um, but, but then Jerry does this Superman and then Mike Zeck did a Punisher and Mike Zeck did a Punisher. Um, I believe that is so great because Jerry's Superman is, is in front of him. And then Art Adams does a long shot. That's so great because Mike and, and, and Jerry's are in front of him. And what happens is and, and, and my buddy, in, in fact, it was Eric Larson himself who looked at the sketchbook and said, oh man, you got people cooking now. You got people who are trying to outdo the sketch in front of them. There's some real sense of competition going on. And he's right. Because after that Jerry Ordway sketch, everything else gets better. Everything else in the, in the sketchbook improves. And because everyone's trying to rise and going, well, I don't want to be the dog in the book. I don't want to be the one that, oh, this guy didn't give it his all. This guy half-assed it. Okay. So where that, how that, here we go, pertains, pertains to the annuals is in this period of like 1977 to 1982, the best period for the annuals, the talent was really seemed to step up and compete with one another. This, 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 uh, this X-Men annual that George Perez did, uh, is, um, is, is inked by Terry Austin, and it is in fact the only time that George would do the X Men, and it came deep into the uh, the it came deep into the uh, 
John Byrne, Terry Austin run. And, and, and I mean, like we're talking like right, the door is knocking on the Hellfire Club. So, so John has been there, um, for two and a half, three years, this, this, this annual comes out in 79 and it appears again one day. I didn't know it was coming. It wasn't advertised. I'm getting an extra issue of the X-Men. It's got a Frank Miller, Terry Austin cover. It features a character named Archon, A-R-K-O-N, who I had seen in some Avengers reprint comics. He's from a different realm, another magical realm, much like what we talked about with Shang-Chi. He comes from an entire different realm of like space barbarians. And uh, he appears, you know, out in the X-Men's lawn while, while Colossus is swimming. They battle. He battles the X-Men until they calm him down. He pleads his case. He needs them to come back to his realm to help him, you know, usurp the power. And they do. And, and that's where you get Wolverine and Cyclops and Storm and Colossus and everybody going straight on through to this magical realm. And they help Archon win the day. Oversized, 42 pages of George Perez, who had been crushing it on the Avengers and on Marvel 2 and 1 and on the Fantastic Four, he was a dedicated badass um, uh, fan favorite who was competing at all times with John Byrne. And I've done an entire episode on the... the, the it's called... It was one of my earliest podcasts. I, I could not recommend it more highly. It is called The uh, Rivalry That Defined a Generation. Because again, Byrne did Marvel 2 and 1. George does Marvel 2 and 1. Uh, George does the Avengers. Byrne does the Avengers. George comes back to the Avengers. George does the Fantastic Four. John does the Fantastic Four. Uh, these guys were very competitive, and they were seen as the two most dynamic, most popular artists working at Marvel at the time. Frank Miller was just starting to come around when George leaves to go to DC Comics, and I've got all my theories about that in retrospect, how George... Um, it, it was getting crowded. Walt Simonson, Howard Shaken, Frank Miller, John Byrne... George was kind of the bridge between the, the the last of the Silver Age guys and this new... Uh, he was a Bronze Age creation himself, but he came up with a bunch of kind of Silver Age influences, and George pivoted and dominated by shifting to DC. But at this this summer, he did an X-Men annual, and it is magnificent, and Terry Austin inked every single frame, except for the one page that I've mentioned that John Byrne inked, because Terry Austin did not want to leave John Byrne out, given that the X-Men was so much a product of his um, efforts and popularity at the time. So at a convention, he gives one of the, it's, it's the X-Men are riding a dragon, flying by a giant crowd. It's like a three panel page. And in the middle of the book, you just go, wow, the inks change. It's, it's, it's thicker. It's, it's more brushy. That's John. John took this George Perez page up to his room and, and in the Marvel comics, X-Men omnibus, Terry recounts that he brought it back the next day and he had inked George Perez. I have been looking for that piece of art my entire life. I would just like to see it and hold it, but I have never in, in 35 years of this business, more as a fan ever seen it on any dealer table. It must have been lost in a fire or sequestered deep, 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 deep in someone's collection. Not to see the light of day. But uh, George brings it on this. He knows that John X-Men is the hottest book in the land and he steps up to the plate. Chris Claremont talks also in that same X-Men omnibus how much he, how he had been wanting to work with George Perez, that George was such a hot talent that he was so excited to get him for this one job. And it is the one time they told an X-Men story together. It is the one time Terry Austin inked him on an entire interior story. It is brilliant. X-Men 3, X-Men, and Archon, okay, to follow up also the Avengers 10 annual. Well, then we're going to pivot to an unexpected gem, which I am telling you right now is, is one of the surprises of my youth. I, I talk about a trip my dad and I took to, uh, to, to Morro Bay up the coast. And uh, along the way, we stopped off at a liquor store. And I remember getting an issue of Micronauts and getting a magazine called Warriors of the Shadow Realm, a weird world tale, which I'm going to get to in our fantasy countdown uh, very soon. And uh, seriously, you guys, thank you for all the input on... I, I did an ElfQuest episode, and I was uncertain how that would go over, and it went over huge. Thank you guys for digging it so much. We are going to continue our fantasy kind of... Uh, uh, spotlights when we get to the the weird world and warriors of the shadow realm which is whoa mind-blowing trust me on this one if you've never heard of it you're going to dig it amazing spider-man annual 13 came out also the summer of 79 these guys are are each like competing with each other i can do a better annual than you these guys they, they lived in new york or 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 they got xerox's sent or they visited the offices and they were aware of what everyone was doing and, and, and you could tell by the interviews at the time, they were all aware of what everyone was doing. When I was at the, uh, 
Disneyland, visiting the Avengers campus, and I'll get into this some other time deeper. I was talking to Jim Starlin, and and who I love and adore, and, and his annuals are about to come on this countdown. And I said to Jim, I said, look, who was your rival? And he says, oh, Walt and, and Howard Chaikin, we were rivals. Th- th- those were my rivals back in the day. And I'm like, of course, that makes sense. They were all kind of hitting their stride at the same time. It was right before Ber- Perez and Byrne came around. But he had his own. Everybody has a rival. Everybody is is sharpening against someone else. Amazing Spider-Man annual. King Size Annual 13, written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by John Byrne, inked by Terry Austin. Terry Austin was very busy in 1979. This is a Doc Ock versus Spider-Man annual that has got some of the best John Byrne, Terry Austin artwork, and, and that includes their amazing run on X-Men. It was John had been doing Marvel team-up. Only one issue had been inked by Terry Austin so far. That was the Red Sonia issue, which is great. But this is a dedicated Spider-Man with my favorite villain, Doc Ock. But it is a very strange... All I will say is it has a very... The, the structure of the story, Marv Wolfman is genius. It's actually... you. It's a standalone story. You don't have to get the follow-up because it connects to another annual. But there is a mystery as as as, as to why... Peter Parker goes on the mission that he goes in this issue. He is contacted by an uh, uh, a law enforcement officer. That's all I'll say, and 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 asked to investigate something. And Peter Parker goes undercover. It's cool. He's got stubble. He's got a leather jacket. John draws him so great, and he encounters Doc Ock. But there's a twist at the end. And this is years before. All I'll say is the Sixth Sense. Obviously, it is it is almost you know uh, uh, twenty years. It is twenty years before the Sixth Sense. And it is a great twist that to get the fulfillment, the rest of the backstory, you have to go to the next chapter, but you get it. The, the revelation of the twist is at the end of this annual by Marv Wolfman, John Byrne, Terry Austin. It is King Size Spider-Man. Spider-Man annual number 13, summer of 79, was rocking. But the summer of 77 would bring our top annuals. Um, I'm only going to do five for this time out. We will do another series on annuals because good God, Frank Miller did so many of them. He can, he can have his own kind of special space. The Avengers annual of 1977 was a, was the book that, that, that for me just absolutely floored me. It came out in August of 1977. So it was summer. My mom is taking me and my friends to the beach. And we get to stop at the 7-Eleven, which is right before the beach. A couple, you know, down Beach Boulevard and about four blocks from, from you know, the end. And, and I pull in and I see this Avengers annual. Uh, I, again, didn't know it was coming. Brand new comic. Beautiful Jim Starlin art. Purple cover. Grabbed it. And um, I uh, just kept reading it over and over on the sand of Huntington Beach. Right next to the pier. And to the point where my mom said, I didn't drive all the way to the beach for you to read a comic book all day. Now go get in the water with your friends. Because I had brought my friends, my friends Nathan and Kenneth had come along. Well, I, I, I got the picture and I wrapped up my comic book in the towel. Again, there are no bags and boards. There, there's no Mylars, guys. Not, not to this kid from Anaheim. Um, that's the summer I saw Star Wars. I'm still nine. I turned 10 October of 1977. My mind is blown. Some of the most beautiful Jim Starlin art, the Avengers at full capacity, contacted by Captain Marvel. The cosmic world was Jim Starlin's. He owned that space at Marvel, as you've seen, because they brought it to fruition in Endgame and Infinity War, and you've seen how Jim owned the cosmic space because it came to life on screen and you were blown away by it as much as we were in the comic book pages. This was the final battle with Thanos. His Adam Warlock story that he'd been building to over years, and his Captain Marvel because Jim got big his name on Captain Marvel and um, the male Captain Marvel as well as Adam Warlock, and they were both careening towards this conclusion with the Avengers, and um, he's Thanos has this kind of Death Star battle station, and Captain Marvel contacts the uh, the 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 Avengers, and uh, they. Adam Warlock's involved, and I don't want to do all the twists and the turns, but there's a giant cliffhanger. And and Jim Starlin, this brilliant 40-page cosmic adventure with the Avengers throwing down with, with all of Thanos' cosmic armies on board, basically a, a de facto, um, a de facto uh, 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 Death Star, ends on this giant cliffhanger. They've all been defeated. Oh my gosh. But it goes to Marvel 2-in-1 Annual, which came out about six weeks later. 
Marvel 2-in-1 Annual number 2, The Thing and Spider-Man. Spider-Man is contacted in these visions, in his dreams, and he goes to Ben Grimm, and they go up to, in space and follow the whim, the spider senses, and they encounter Thanos and his dominance over the Avengers. And so now you've got a member of the Fantastic Four, the most popular member of the Fantastic Four, and Marvel's number one character on board the space station attempting to thwart Thanos. He's trying to get the stones, the soul stone. There is a twist with Adam Warlock, but uh, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but collectively this is almost 80 pages of the most kick-ass Avengers story um, of its of its age. Jim Starlin writing, drawing in peak, peak form. Joseph Rubenstein inking it. Beautiful finishes. Um, I, I got a chance to buy some of this artwork a couple of years ago and I slept on it and, and it haunts me to this day that I didn't buy these pages. And uh, Avengers Annual 10, I'm sorry, Avengers Annual 7, because there's two Avengers Annuals on this list, and Marvel 2-in-1 Annual 2 combined to make one powerful, kick-ass story. Marvel has reprinted it in recent years, given the Infinity War and the um, the, the Endgame, just called Avengers versus Thanos, and, and, and uh, gives you kind of all the stories leading up to this, but definitely concludes with this amazing, uh, amazing story. And, and if you don't... Um, if you're not aware of Adam Warlock and you read this, you'll want to go back and get familiar with all of Jim's Adam Warlock stuff. There's a, there's a reason everyone is anticipating Adam Warlock in the cinematic space. There is an absolute reason for this. So those are my top five annuals, summer annuals that kicked my ass as a kid. Avengers Annual 10, X-Men Annual uh, 3, Spider-Man uh, Annual number 13, Avengers 7, Marvel 2 and 1, 2. You are going... You, I mean, that's Burn Perez... A big giant heaping serving of Frank uh, of Jim Starlin and Michael Golden uh, on Avengers Annual Ten. You cannot go wrong with these. That that is those bring back awesome summer memories of when you got that extra bonus book on top of your regular books. You know they'd shipped it along. You got an X Men comic and an X Men Annual. You got a Marvel Two in One and a Marvel Two in One Annual. Um, and these guys were pushing themselves. Annuals used to be where these guys stepped up and did their very best work. Because some of this, I believe that is Jim Starlin's finest work. I believe that is some of Jim John Byrne's finest work. I believe that is some of John, George Perez's finest work. It's in the upper echelon, and it may be Michael Golden's best work he ever did. That's what these annuals meant. That was the age of the annual. We're going to circle back. There's more annuals to cover. But you guys, man, Shang-Chi, the Magic Realm annuals, I, I just can't, I wish... I wish I could go longer on these on these shows because uh, I I I I am so um, you know obviously entertained by comics. My love of them is um, is kind of uh, kind of a bit a bit severe. So so this is the period. Thank you guys for listening to another another episode, and and I I, I appreciate it so much. You guys leave great reviews for me. I appreciate them so much. I read them at the end of every show. I'm going to read some right now. Thank you guys. I, I have come to realize how important your reviews and your rankings are and your subscriptions and your word of mouth. And I would just ask that you continue on that, this path. I am going to read right now to you. Uh, uh, um, um, wow. The, the, you guys have been really, really uh, sharing some great stuff. Here is um, from D Rockalypse. D Rockalypse. Uh, you guys get A pluses for great names. Love it. Five stars. I love this podcast. I have listened to every single episode. I love the ElfQuest episode. I have never read it, but this episode has me wanting to. My son is really into The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Sounds like we might be into ElfQuest too. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, D. Rockalypse. D. Rockalypse for your generous, generous uh, um, um, uh, uh, review. Inside Baseball. From a 30-year industry expert, writes iTrig, I-T-R-I-G-G-3, iTrig, um, or maybe it's L-Trig, uh, looks, something Trig 3, thank you for the kind words, it says, this is one of the best inside scoops in the entire comic book industry, Rob Liefeld brings 30 years of experience from humble beginnings of an assistant to being an industry rock star to launching multiple comic book companies, the best part of it all is his industry experience and insights are wrapped up in being a lifelong comic book fan. If you want to peek behind the curtain or take a trip down memory road, this podcast is for you. Thank you. Thank you so much, L-T-R-I-G-G. It's definitely, yeah, L-T-R-I-G-G-3. Thank you for that generous um, podcast. You guys know I just love talking comics. I love talking them with you. I love warming up to this mic. Um, 
Oh my gosh. Someday we'll do a double-sized uh, edition. Um, but, but, but that is it for today's episode. What a fun time. What a fun time coming up. Annuals, uh, all of these Marvel movies, just great stuff happening now. Great stuff happening then. I love talking about all of it. I am all over social media. I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. With the blue check, it tells you it's really me, not the phony imposters. Um, if, 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 if a Liefeld account is contacting you, asking you for money, that's not me. Check. If it doesn't have the blue check, that's not me. There are always scams. Look out for those. Um, but Rob Liefeld on Instagram. On Twitter, I am my full name, Robert Liefeld. Same thing, blue check. It's really me. I love to talk to you guys. I love to read your comments. Um, I love to have you know conversations with you guys. We have so many of them um, on a regular basis. I appreciate the input. I appreciate the back and forth so much. I am all over Facebook. I'm, um, I'm, I've got a couple different profiles. I've got a couple different groups. I love talking comics and pop culture with you guys. And thank you again for joining me on this episode of Rob's Rovations. You know the deal. You are going to stay safe. Okay. This is what I tell my kids every time they walk out the door. So why wouldn't I tell you the same? You are going to stay safe. You are going to take care of yourselves. And I am going to talk again to you real soon. 